Hey everyone, it's Joe Russo, Mixed Postmortem Producing Partner, here to tell you about an upcoming home video release we're really excited about. On August 7th from Severin Films, for the first time ever on Blu-ray, one of the most terrifying movies ever made, The Changeling. Remastered in 4K and packed with exclusive special features, including director and producer commentary and interview featurettes. Plus, the documentary short, The Haunting True Story of The Changeling. The limited edition includes the soundtrack CD and slipcase. From Severin Films, George C. Scott and Peter Medics, The Changeling, on Blu-ray, August 7th. Pre-order now at www.severin-films.com. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. These days, horror is a pretty insular genre. Most horror filmmakers work almost exclusively in that field, either because that is their area of passion, or they've been consigned to it by success in that field. But such was not always the case. In the heyday of Hollywood, Alfred Hitchcock was known for his thrillers and even comedies like Mr. and Mrs. Smith before finding his greatest success in the horrors of Psycho and the Birds. Howard Hawks directed westerns, romantic comedies, and The Thing from Another World. Let's just leave Christian Nyby out of the conversation for now. Robert Wise directed The Sound of Music, West Side Story, and The Sand Pebbles, as well as The Haunting and the first Star Trek movie. For the most part, directors were journeymen. They took the jobs as they came up and were assigned to them. They were filmmakers, not Western filmmakers or drama filmmakers or horror filmmakers. It is incredibly exhilarating when a director not known for an expertise in the genre ends up surprising you with an innate understanding for scaring the shit out of you. Nobody expected the guy who made The Sound of Music to completely change the language of horror cinema with The Haunting. You just wouldn't expect it. And though it's rare, it still happens. A Quiet Place, in my opinion, is one of the most original, beautifully directed horror films I've seen in a long, long time. And it was directed by a sitcom actor, for God's sake. I loved The Office and always enjoyed John Krasinski as a comic actor with a lot of range. He had directed two movies before A Quiet Place, and neither of them hinted at an aptitude for creating tension and terror. And he has said that he was never really a horror fan. But he did his homework, watched all the right movies, dissected the attributes of the genre films that worked, and in the process, developed a passion for the genre and an understanding of its mechanics. Perhaps one of the reasons it works so well is that it was made by a director who was so open to discovery and whose storytelling is so rooted in human emotion. Our guest today is another filmmaker whose resume would not have hinted at the classic ghost story he made in 1980. Peter Medak hit the ground running in the 70s. The ruling class was an anti-establishment British comedy satire that exploded around the world. Others followed. Comedies, social dramas, now classic crime stories of every stripe. But like The Haunting and A Quiet Place, Medak's The Changeling was devastatingly original and deeply emotional and is one of my very favorite ghost stories of all time, and one of the reasons I was excited to have him work on Masters of Horror. He has an amazingly long and varied career, and we'll get to know more about the man and his movies after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So, Peter, you were born in Budapest. Yes. Uh, and you left 
during the revolution. Revolution, yeah. So tell me about that. Fifty-six, and you were eighteen years old, or something. Yes. So, how did you get out? What was the means of your departure? Well, I mean, I had to get out of Hungary because um, I couldn't do anything there. I was banned from going to school after age thirteen, mm-hmm. and so I was totally and am still totally uneducated <laughs> or oh, consider no. myself such. And uh, my father was imprisoned by the Russians and the communist regime, and uh, uh, eventually he died, not in prison, but he died in my arm uh, after four years of being in prison. And uh, as I say, I couldn't go to school. I couldn't do anything. And all I wanted to do was to be close to the studios, you know, and you had to be an idiot to think that in Hungary during communism, where all they were doing is propaganda movies. But fortunately, I had an aunt of mine who has given for my, was a very famous opera singer in the West. Ah. And for my eighth birthday, she gave me a 35 millimeter hand-cranked projector. Really? And a piece of film from the Hungarian studio. And that started basically my obsession about movies. And well, I, Hungary had a great history of yes. cinema before the Russian occupation. Yes, yes, it did. It did you know, and uh, you know the the Kordas, Alexander Korda, and he started in Hungary, and many others. I don't know whether George Kukor started there, but they all. But he came did from there. Their stuff, <laughs> yeah. You know, and and then came out to the West which was the thing to do. So um, Now, the Cordas were famous producers in the 40s, particularly, who yeah. made big fantasy films and, and That's right, just you giant know. Hollywood movies. Were yeah. those inspirations yeah. for you? But Alexander Corda and the Corda brothers came from a tiny little hamlet, not even a village, called Turkava. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he, uh, those days in 1900, the thing was to be... A journalist, you know, so he went to Budapest to become a very famous journalist, and then he went to Vienna and then to Paris, and he got into movies, and and uh, the rest was really history because London Films was one of the greatest movie companies, and basically created the film business in England. Mm. Together, his opposite side was J.R. to rank, so there was these right. two humongous companies, but anyhow. And uh, um, I came out too late to be part of it, but mm-hmm. King Vidor, and I mean, all those Hungarians who came out, he used to have a sign in his office saying, it's not enough to be Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So what, what were the Hungarian films in particular that may have inspired you, or the works of King Vidor and George Kukor? And yes, well, I was a very yeah. young kid, yeah. and uh, there was only one film which absolutely grabbed me and took me by hand, and it was a film which was made after the war about a bunch of kids wandering through the countryside who lost their parents, and it was called, in English, Somewhere in Europe, mm. and it was a, become a very famous film, but it made a tremendous impression on me, and it still exists, you know, one can get it, but it was a fantastic film. And uh, they all took refuge in a castle, and this old man turned up, you know, and, and well, I can't even remember the rest of it, but it was absolutely brilliant. It was about lost children. Mm-hmm. And I always thought what an incredible would be to remake that movie after an anatomic disaster, oh, explosion, yes. and, and all that. 
But of course, you think of these things, you never do anything about them. <laughs> but that was, but then in Hungary, I mean, I was 19 when I escaped during the revolution. And, and in 1948, the communist regime took over and then it, the Western movies were forbidden. Mm-hmm. And the only films were shown were American films, which could twist into propaganda films, oh, I see. you know. And uh, I seen several several movies, but also remember Paul Robson coming to Budapest singing right. Old Man River. Right. So Paul Robson was a very famous singer who became an actor exactly. as well, who was African American. Yes, and, and he, it was he was very controversial in the United absolutely. States. Absolutely. But yes. then we thought he was a communist, but he wasn't. It, that was how the communist regime twisted it. Uh-huh, you know? okay. But he was a black activist already then, and incredibly famous, and uh, Porgy and Bess and all that, you know. Yes, yes. Anyhow, but but I did see about three films in Hungary in before I escaped, uh, and this Hungarian film called Somewhere in Europe, in Hungarian, it's called Valahol Europaba. This is somewhere, anyhow. Yeah. The other film was um, uh, Dane. It, it was a film. Hang on a sec. The other film was a French movie with Gerard Philippe in it called Fanfan La Tulipe, mm-hmm. which was a period kind of very beautiful film. It was an incredible actor. Who actually made the original Lears and Dangerous film oh, with right, John right. Moreau in it? You know, yes, that movie, and uh, and there was a Swedish film called uh, Last Summer's Happiness in English, mm-hmm. which was the first film when you could see frontal nudity, but it ah. was a love story about these two people, those young kids in the summer in Sweden. And uh, the old man who was in um, Igmar Bergman's movie in, um, oh, God, uh, uh, God, the one. Uh, Seventh Seal? No, no. no it was a Virgin very, Spring? It was a very early movie of Igmar Bergman. God, I can't think of it now. Anyway. Anyhow, it will come to me in a minute. Yeah. Uh, who was a very famous Swedish actor, uh, played the main part. So those three films, you know, just absolutely blew me away. Plus, Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Right. This was like 1948, I think. 1948. And 1948, the Iron Curtain came down to Hungary. There was an election which was fixed by the communists. Mm -hmm. And somebody called Imre Rakoshi took over, who was trained during the war in Russia, in Moscow, and each of those countries which become satellite countries of the communist regime, Stalin had all these people in Russia, while it was debatable about the outcome of the war, being trained for the moment where they will be pushed into Europe and within two seconds, the right time, they will take over. An and within two and days, over, there was yeah. absolute terror mm-hmm. in Hungary. And that's when my father and mother got arrested purely being middle-class Jews, you know, mm-hmm. even the textile factory and all that. And so from that point on, all I wanted to do is just to get out of Hungary because I knew I had no, no chance. However, the only thing I did do, thank God, is the only thing I could do is to study photography. Ah, okay. And in Hungary, you know, they had some of the greatest photographers who came out 
Curtis and people like that. And so um, I studied three days at the school and then uh, two days was practical. Was it all uh, still photography still or did photog- you also do no, cinematography? Still photography. And interestingly enough, all the camera operators from the studios who weren't fit politically, they were all sent into prison, into this komsomol of photographers because they nationalized everything. Mm-hmm. But there was this sensational photographer whose assistant I'd become and uh, holding lamps and the first synchronized flashlights and oh, wow. doing uh, a whole book about the Hungarian ballet like those new type photographs with mm. 15 synchronized brown hobbies, they were called uh-huh. flashlights. And one day we were at the National Gallery kind of doing microscopic photography, uncovering a 14th century paintings with all the layers underneath it. Next day, and some poor guy who was arrested because he stole empty milk bottles or something. Oh. So stupid things like that. But it taught me about life, and he taught me about light, which when you're a young kid, I mean, you can't tell that what this does. Or how can you recreate that those two lights in the right. corridor and to the control background. an environment? Exactly, yeah. you know. And uh, so this guy, his name was Bela Kalman in English, Kalman Bela the other way. Like yeah, I would yeah. be Medak <laughs> Peter, and it's Peter mm-hmm. Medak here, you know. Right. So. Um, he really threw open my eyes to vision. So he was your mentor. He, yeah, he was he my was... first mentor. Hmm. <clears throat> now, how does an 18, 19-year-old kid escape from a revolution taking place in his yeah. country and become and start working as a filmmaker? How, well, how did that begin? It's the same aunt who gave me that projector. Mm-hmm. She was a very famous singer in London, and she was working with Benjamin Bitten at the time right. on Turn of the Screw. And the young boy in that production was David Hemmings, strangely oh, wow. enough. But this is when I arrived in 1956 to London. <coughs> so my aunt Lotta, Lotta de Wolf Medak was her name. The minute I, I mean, she tried to smuggle me out of Hungary during communism because she was she always performing in Hungary, playing Faust and operas like that. And uh, so I had this purpose to go to my aunt, you know, and she came and picked me up from the refugee camp within two days and uh, took me to London and stayed with them in uh, absolute luxury in Mayfair, coming out with nothing, you know, Mm. in the middle of the winter from Hungary. And uh, she introduced me to two people. That was this Hungarian international lawyer who was in Shepherd's Market in in London. And we went to talk to him and he said, don't worry, I write two letters and one went to somebody called C.J. Latter, L-A-T-T-A, mm-hmm. who, was the, who was Jack Warner's representative in a very <laughs> big British Brothers movie too. company uh-huh. called Associate British Pathé oh, yes. and Picture Company, which was Elstree Studios, where Spielberg later on made his movies in England. Right. And uh, so see, I, I, I met with C.J. I don't know how I spoke to him because I, my English was really terrible, you know. But he said, don't worry, you know, he said, we have to get you in the union. And I got to London in December 6th and January the 7th, I started working. 
at the Associated British Pathé, which was that documentary side, oh, I see. which was newsreel and Pathé pictorial and all that. As yeah, we've app- all seen the, the rooster crowing exactly, on the newsreels. As yeah. an apprentice. So I'm there <coughs> in January. And because of my experience of uh, photography, mm-hmm. I started in the stills department, you know, glazing prints, you know, for Pate News, which used to go into cinemas. They had like six, seven cinemas in London, in the West End, right. Kensington, Chelsea. And in the window it went, because before the movie started, they used to show Pate News. Right, you know, right, yeah, the newsreels, and, and so I was the idiot who was glazing these prints <laughs> on this steel drum. And oh, I God. remember it's the first Putnik going around the world. And oh yeah, that Queen was in the Mary 50s, opening yeah. up, whatever yeah. you know. So the history of the world is going around on this thing. Wow. And so after about I don't know five months of doing that, you know, I wrote to Mr. Latter because I knew he was my second lifeline after this incredible photographer. And he was incredibly powerful. He was head of the Variety, variety Club and, and he was a millionaire guy. And I wrote to him and I said, I really love my experience in the stills department, but I'm desperate to direct, you yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> So this continued on for about two years. But in that two years, I went through editing, sound mixing, projection room, uh, going into the camera maintenance department, which was run by a man called Sid Rental, and his son went sick one day on a film. And Sid said, look, you know enough about it now, how to load. And they have the uh, carry flexes, uh, camiflexes, IMO Mm -hmm. cameras, all kinds of seven different cameras. Go to Windsor Great Park at 6 tomorrow morning, take a taxi. It's probably going to cost £20, but they give you back the money. And report to... Nicholas Rogue, who's the camera operator. Wow. Who, of course, directed performance and performance and all that. Great movies. And so I turned up and I did everything wrong that day. I loaded up the magazines the wrong way and the camera got jammed. And and it was a film called Clans in Clover, Uh directed by somebody called Val Guest. Val Guest, who right. went on to do exactly. some genre films later. So I was incredibly clean, and, and Nick said it was, a, it was a cinemascope picture, so you had two focus pullers on each side. Ah. And uh, Nick was the camera operator, and uh, I can't remember. Ronnie Maas was one of the focus pullers. And wow. Anyhow, they were legendary people already. Right, right. And uh, so Nick said, oh, run the tape, and used to run the tape from here 50 feet to measure the distance for folk. Right. For, for those things didn't pool, exist, yes. you know, uh-huh. and you could do it electronically. So I did this, and Valgast is looking through with his cigar mm-hmm. and scarf, the camera <laughs> on a blimp camera, which was a ton. Right, the and blimp he's looking is, through, uh, so that it quiets the sound when you're yeah. running. So I'm this winding noisy the camera. tape back like a lunatic, hmm. and I touched the wrong knob, and the blimp came down on his neck on his and cut his cigar into <laughs> half. Oh wow! <laughs> and he said, "Who is this idiot?" You know, and I mean, anyhow, I did. Me, su- it's Peter Medak. Yeah, <laughs> I did survive it, and many years later. I was at the table of Columbia after I'd done three or four films, 
And Walgast is sitting opposite me, you know, and he said, I was after ruling class. And I said, oh, I so wanted to meet you, you know, and I love your females and all that. And I said, he said, I've got a terrible news for you because we did meet before, you know. And he said, <laughs> Not under very I good said, on Windsor Great Park on Cleansing Clover. And he said, I can't believe it, that was you, you know. <laughs> okay, you mentioned the ruling class. Yes. That was my first introduction to you. You have spent a career as an anti-establishmentarian. Yes. Uh, you have always, your films are sort of radical in their approach. Ruling class was wildly unconventional. And yes. it was during the days, I mean, the swinging 60s happened. This sure. was like right after the swinging 60s. Yeah. So tell me how that came about. This was... well. Uh, <clears throat> It's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. But, uh, you know, I, I was very lucky because I got to England not speaking English in, six, in 1956. In 1963, by some miracle, I went under contract to Universal Studios and right. I was brought out. I'm jumping back a bit. No, no, I know where. I, I was, was brought yes. out to... Los Angeles, being an assistant director on a film called VIPs, and I was a second assistant. Oh, and that was Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor, and, and Richard, Richard Burton, Burton. Louis yeah, yeah. Jordan, Margaret Rutherford, Maggie Smith's first movie ever, and all that. Ah. So I arrived to Los Angeles on a seven-year yearly contract to be shown how to direct television at the Universal Studios, so the same way that Steven Spielberg started. Exactly, but yeah. Yeah, there's a catch to it, you know. Uh -huh. so, uh, so the guy who picks me up at London Airport, at, at, at Los Angeles Airport, is Sid Scheinberg, who was a lawyer uh, yes. working for the television department. So Sidney picks me up and he said, you are my responsibility, why are you here? And the original idea was I'm going to be there for like six to eight weeks, observe the thing, go back to England and start to work on their co-productions. Well, a week later, Sidney comes to me and he said, I've got bad news for you, the project fell through and we want you to go back to London. Oh. We'll pay you for the whole year and we'll see what happens next year. And by then I got reasonably friendly quickly with everybody, mm -hmm. unintentionally, you know, but I was a busy body. You know, You're a friendly guy. 6,000 people, six, you know, there were 3,000 people working at Universal, yeah. 30 TV productions and 10 movies, anyhow. And I said, Sydney, I can't go back to London. He said, why? I said, because Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and Anatole de Grunwald, they threw a big party. Orson Welles was in it too. And he said, the kid goes to Hollywood. He's getting his big break. You know, I can't go back two weeks later <laughs> saying I'm back again. He no. said, let me talk to the boys, meaning Lou Wasserman, this right. and that. So the end result was we decided you should stay. We're going to get your green card. It's going to take about three months. But meanwhile, we want you to observe every production at the studio. I mean, what an incredible luck. First thing is I turn up on the set of Marnie oh with my Mr. God. Hitchcock. Oh, my God. And Hitch says to me, he said, you Hungarian. I love Hungarians, you know. So I was with him, watching him direct Marnie. And Sean Connery comes on the set and he says, kid, what the fuck are you doing here, yeah. you know? 
And he said, Sean, I'm going to be a director. <laughs> so that was this incredible beginning at Universal. That's how I started at Universal on Amazing Stories. I yeah, was I a know. writer, Steven Spielberg, Spielberg, and I know. I'm, I'm working with I Quint was Eastwood desperate to try to get on that show. Oh, it was so <laughs> much fun. <laughs> but the so thing was yeah. that I was here then for three years and did all kinds of things and worked on all kinds of shows for Universal. So this was film school for you? I was the most incredible film school. Yeah. But I started directing. and But while I, I didn't have my work permit, I said to Sid, as I'm going crazy, through Hitch's, Mr. Hitchcock, not yes. Hitch, his editor, who was English, I seen all this incredible silent footage at the back lot of the studio. Oh. I said, I want to shoot. Give me a camera crew for Christ's sake before I go crazy. <laughs> and I want to shoot a documentary on the back lot. And the black tar wasn't, just went up. So I did a shot going up on the elevator. Uh -huh. And then I shot everything in the back lot. And this this and is the giant, that. iconic building of all the studio executives. Yeah, exactly. The Which tower. was the only yeah. high-rise building there. In Universal and City. And I just drove yeah. through and it's surrounded by yeah. 50, 90 floor buildings. Wow. But anyhow, so I did this thing. And a few, day, few weeks later, Sid says, so when can we see your epic, you know? <laughs> I said, it's ready. And uh, we had a screening. But then I was, Jules Stein's sister was a friend of mine, kind of everybody I got to know at the studio. <laughs> and uh, uh, we screened this, and Al Dorskin was the financial treasurer of MCA, which was a huge company now. Right. They now, at that time, owned Universal Studios. So, and they uh, were a, a showed, talent agency. Yeah, I showed them the film. And Dorskin said to Sid, he said, you know, the kid is right. That's what we got to do. We go, got to open up the gates to the studio, sell the short ends, get buses right through the film sets and all that. And the Universal tour would have happened probably anyhow. But, but it you came, were responsible. It came from this little documentary. Wow. You know, oh, that's amazing. And, uh, uh, and Sid Scheinberg became the head of the studio head for of years the studio, and years. Yeah. Absolutely. And I still see him sometimes. Oh, is that right? And then years later, when I went back to England, again, Sid called up saying, want to pick up your next option. By then I found my first little book. And this unknown English actress who was Glenda Jackson, oh, except God. she was already known in the theater because of Marat Saad and right. genius Peter Brook. And that's what I want to do. I said, Sydney, I don't want to come back. I want to make movies. And I didn't come back. And who got my place? Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and Doing the Steve night gallery got in episode. There, and that's yeah. why Sid Schoenberg and Steve stayed so close. Wow. And that's why today Steve is still and forever will be at Universal. Whatever yeah. deal he's got in the world, yeah. he will never leave the studio. So he was the 21-year-old who came in Absolutely, at that point locked himself in. Yeah. and wouldn't leave the studio until he could talk to yeah. somebody or whatever the story. Oh, I think he was 16 years old and he used to carry a briefcase so he'd look like yeah, he belonged you know, there and no, moved it's, into it's, an empty it's office. It's fantastic, yeah. but those things did happen those days, you know. Yeah. But creatively... This was a period where the British film industry was going crazy. The studios didn't have any control. They didn't know how to make movies for a young audience. No. And in no. England, anti-establishment uh, filmmaking and sure. creativity kind of ruled the roost at that time. Absolutely. So 
I mean, you'd done a couple things before ruling class, a few things before yes. ruling class, but yeah. that was the one that kind of took everybody by surprise. I know, I know, because it was outrageous. And uh, Peter Barnes was a great friend of mine who wrote the play. Mm -hmm. And he helped me with the script, which I wrote, and I can't write, but I wrote that first script from a book called Negatives. Mm -hmm. And then when I did A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, which was written by Peter Nichols, which was the second movie, it was a very famous play, which Albert Finney did, and, yeah, and this yeah. and that. Richard Dreyfuss did it in New York and all mm -hmm. that. Anyhow, uh, Peter Barnes was always a great friend, and when he wrote Ruling Class, I saw it very early on, and he said, you know, I was already great friends with Peter O'Toole because... After Negatives, which was quite a big success, which came out the same time as Antonioni's uh, Blow Up. Blow Up, yeah, yeah. And they compared the two movies, although there's no comparison between So that's them. like 66 or so? 1968. 68, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> so then... Um, um, I was going to do an incredible movie called Figures in the Landscape, which was the result of negatives. I see. Because O'Toole saw, O'Toole saw it and he said, we got to get this kid to direct this film. And so uh, Peter O'Toole was cast and I cast Malcolm McDowell into it right after wow. If. Wow. And yeah. then the studio wouldn't let me do the book, you know, where the two characters die because the whole film was about the death which awaits us all. And it was an incredible kind of Japanese type, very physical movie. Mm, but nobody would pay for a movie but where they, they die at the I end. I got called thought. up, you know, CBS was financing it. And oh, he said, one of the two have to live. And I said, you are all crazy. That's not what the book is about. And I walked out. It's the first movie I walked out of. Wow. And Joe Losey took it over from me. Joseph Losey, who was a great director who did The Pawnbroker and many other exactly. really fantastic you know, who was films. brilliant. Yeah. And Joe was desperate to do a movie of his called The Go-Between. And he made oh, a yeah. deal that if he will do this and he will do whatever they want, as, provide that guy, as long as they finance Go-Between. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happened. I walked out, heartbroken. I walked away from this. So O2 knew me. So Peter Barnes said... We should take ruling class to Peter O'Toole. And it took me about three months to try to get him to the bloody theater. And Peter was so in love with me that he offered me everything he was offered, you know. Mm -hmm. And he was doing um, wow. um, um, a submarine movie in, in, art in Brazil at the time with wow. Peter Yates. And, uh, and then he wanted me to do... Um, the next, but whatever he was offered, do this, do right. that. I he said, would no. ask you, yeah. Uh, because we never make ruling class. So well, I, let's just first say what ruling class is about. Peter O'Toole's character is a very wealthy guy who's losing his mind, who yeah. thinks he's Jesus, yes. and has lots of money and can do whatever he wants and wears white suits with his long blonde right. hair. But the, the, the thing is that he, his character went insane because he was convinced his J.C. Mark II, Jesus Christ Mark II, <laughs> had a long hair like your hair, <laughs> and he really thought he was God, you yes. know? So they locked him up, and he came from a very high aristocratic family. Right. And that's where the money is the, in the heritage of that, that kind of world. So he was locked up in this asylum because he was a raving lunatic, blessing uh, fucking, uh, you know, ants and things in <laughs> the garden, you know. And then there's a little dash of serial killer in there Well, that's well. later on <laughs> later, because yes. what happens in it is that he thinks he's the god of love. 
you know. And his father, who's a judge, a very big judge, hangs himself as a sexual kind of asphyxiation yes and he's at uh, the at the, the the law courts all day long sentencing people to life and death you know <laughs> then he comes home at night into his incredible country house and for relaxation he used to hang him hang himself for like two three minutes until he nearly suffocates and then he recovers himself in this step letter so when the movie opens he comes home to this country house establishing the whole thing goes into his bedroom, as big as this room, dresses up in a tutu, <laughs> and climbs up on the ladder, and this wonderful actor, Arthur Lowe, who is the butler, comes oh, in yeah. with this silver tray uncovering 15 different hanging ropes, and he <laughs> says, which one, your lordship, tonight? <laughs> and, 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 and Harry Andrews, who was the, the, the judge, the father, says, I think I'll have the sink tonight, and climbs up on the sinks, and it's for St. George, and this and that. Come for me, my love, and jumps off this ladder, you know. And by mistake, he kicks the ladder, so he can't recover from it, and dies. Yes. The butler comes in. He said, he said whiskey in five minutes. He comes in with a tray with the whiskey, and, and he says, oh, God, oh, God, blimey, you know. He said, waste not, want not, drinks the whiskey. And that's the beginning of the <laughs> movie. welcome to the ruling yeah. class, yes. So now the lunatic son comes out of the mental home with a 15-foot cross, you know, and inherits everything to the horror of the rest of the family. And they have this raving lunatic, you know, who eventually is going to take over his father's seats at the House of Lords, you know. But the family starts plotting against him. I try to be quick because it's a complicated <laughs> story. Everybody and, should see this movie. I know yeah. that a lot of our, our viewers, our listeners of, are much younger and would not be familiar yeah, with have this to film. See but it. It, it's not it's because really of great. me, but because of the craziness of the Oh, film, it's insane, you know? but it's brilliant. And all yeah. of the actors are so committed to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And we cast the film in two seconds on the phone and Alistair Sim is in it and Carl Brown and the greatest of that time English theater actors. And Carl Brown it. was, of course, Vincent Price's wife. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in 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 incredible. I mean, it was yeah. an amazing thing and it was a 16-week shoot and Peter and I were great friends, you know. And uh, It's one of O'Toole's greatest performances. Yeah. He is completely unlocked. Yes. You know, he's yeah. unburdened of any control yeah. uh, in a good way. Absolutely. It's such and, a, a. And a, the, the three Peters, yeah. Peter Barnes, Peter O'Toole, and Peter Medak, and they all did the film for each other. It's the know? trinity of Peters. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it, it was a great experience. And it, it, that opened the doors for me. Uh, I remember when I came to LA, I remember I was so naive. It was running for the Oscars because he was nominated for his best actor. Mm -hmm. I didn't even come. You know. oh, uh -huh. But then later on, Mike Meadowoy was my, one of my first agents. He says, you got to come because the whole town is going crazy. And I remember I went to a screening at Fox, you know, at some Mirish Brothers movie, you know, and Mel Brooks was there and mm -hmm. Mel adopted me. <laughs> and he said, this is, inc this is incredible, this film, and you got to... I mean, anyhow. And Mel's a wonderful guy. Oh, I've worked God, with him uh, as well. And, uh, I mean, he keeps saying, I'm in his mentor, you know. <laughs> and I said, stop it, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nonsense, you know. Well, this is... It, it's an amazing movie, and it must have completely changed your life. Suddenly, everybody knew your movie, 
I mean, the studio people knew who you were before, but suddenly everybody knows the ruling class and you were the O2R Yeah, but but what happened is that I took a very difficult road when I did negatives. Right. Because it was a very offbeat, dark movie. Whereas Uh, this was an offbeat, offbeat, bright movie. (laughs) Comedy, which is a total tragedy. Yes. But with a very heavy message at the end, you know, like there's absolutely no hope, you know. The second movie, A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, was um, a breakup of a marriage because of an epileptic spastic child, and Janet Sussman was in it, and Alan Bates, who was a great actor of that time. But again, it was a dark, dark movie about real life, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I did grueling class, you know. So after that, you've committed yourself on a certain road, and it was very, I mean, people looked down on commercial films in England at those days because yeah. Tony Richardson was doing his lovely films and, and with Tom Courtney and, uh, you, you know, The Long Distance Runner and Richard. Well, they were throwing away the rules. They were yeah, throwing away the shackles of what the studios had been about absolutely. for decades. They, they were breaking yeah. and it was... Just like in music. Yeah, the, all the working class thing. And I mean, last night... I went to see Michael Caine, who has been a great friend since I worked with him on fun- funeral in Berlin. Oh, and yeah. and uh, the, the Michael made, uh, Alan Raffanet and Dick Clements just made a documentary called My Generation. And it's all about Michael. You must see it. Oh, that sounds great. It is unbelievable because it's all about London, you know, in the late 50s, 60s, 70s, all through Michael. You know, and you see him, that incredible early period. And as he says in his documentary, that it is the working class had no chance in England at the time from the traditional England. But when he came along and David Bailey came along and Vidal Sassoon came along and uh, Terence Stamp came along and Tom Courtney, who was the forerunner of all of them, it was an absolute revolution exactly the same time when the Beatles turned up, when the Rolling Stone turned up and Nureyev turned up in London. And we were all in the same place, all of us. I didn't qualify into those incredible things they have done, but I was on the fringe of it and we were all friends. You were in the thick of it. This yes. was This was when when London became the symbol of creative uh, freedom and expression. Absolutely. And you were there. You were friends with the Beatles. Yeah. Tell me about that That's right, time. The Beatles, yeah, and, yeah because uh, Walter Shenson was a friend of mine who produced the first three Beatle movies. Right. And I came back from America, and, and Michael talks about this club. There was only one nightclub in London, the Adlib, of, of, of Leicester Square, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, in that club, I met, was having a drink with Walter Shenson, who was this American producer who produced Hard Day's Night and Help and all those yeah. movies, you know. And these four boys came in with this crazy haircut, you know, and, and Walter said, this is Peter Medak, you know, and he's a direct, young direct, blah, 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 you know. Anyhow, so then I met the Beatles, and next day I was back in that club with Elliot Kastner. Mm-hmm. And over there in that table sat 
the four guys, you know, and I said to <laughs> Elliot, I said, you know who those are? I just met them yesterday, the Beatles. And he says, you idiot, that's the Rolling Stones. <laughs> hey, there were five of them. <laughs> exactly, you know, but one was missing that night, whatever. Yeah, but MIA. that was London at the time, you know, and it was so exciting. And nobody had any money. Nobody cared about anything, you know. And it just, this revolution happened. So at that world of filmmakers, you know, at the time, Lindsay Anderson, Carl Rice, you know, yeah, yeah. they fucking make commercial movies which makes, but they never had a movie which made a yeah. hundred million. Well, like million Lindsay dollars. Anderson did If and then later Oh Lucky Man and, yeah. and uh, Britannia so, Hospital. Exactly, and, you know. Uh, yeah. so, so we were all trying to do movies with a deep message about life, you know. So I did this one, two, three movies. Yeah. And then well, the next movie I was going to do because Ruling Class was distributed by United Artists, and Arthur Kim, who owned that company, said to me one day, I said, look, this is your next movie, and it was a script of Death Wish. Really? The Charles Bronson And he said, it's movie. completely yeah. different from what you've done, <laughs> but it's yours if you want it. So me, the idiot, wanted um, um, uh, Henry Fonda to play the guy Oh, to play the Charles Bronson part. The Charles Bronson uh, part, who's a 65-year-old accountant in New York, you know. It would have been a very different Completely movie. different. Yeah. It was an incredible script by Wendell Mays. Mm -hmm. And so I started working on it, and I went back to my darling David Picker, who actually doesn't remember any of this anymore. <laughs> and I said, I've got to make it, because I said to Mr. Fonda, if you read the script and you want to do it, I will only do it with you, which a director should never promise any right. actor. He loved the script. I went back to UA and I said, I want Henry Fonda. And he said, you can't have him. And I said, you owe it to him in that swing chair in your desk at the head of United Artists. He was the head of production then. I got to have Henry Fonda. I said, you can't have it. You can have whoever you want, but not him. I said, okay, I'm out. Wow. I called Sue Mangas up, who was my agent. I said, I'm getting the next The most powerful agent of the time, by yes. the way. Yes. So I went back to London. And two days later, so I walked out of this big movie, which have changed. That would have changed my life because yeah. it was an action piece, but an incredible story. Slightly different than the Bronson movie. I imagine know. more than slightly if it yeah. was Henry Fonda versus uh, Charles Absolutely. Bronson. Yeah. And it was amazing. And I still got the script today. And so that weekend, I'm walking down King's Road, miserable, because oh. I'd walked out of this huge job. And who the bump into is Peter Sellers. Oh. And he says, baby, I heard you walked out of movie because we used to have the same agent Dennis Salinger who was Michael Caine's agent, Susanna York's agent everybody's agent in London <laughs> um, I just, you know, uh, Roger Moore um, not Sean Connery <laughs> but we were all together, friends so I, I, I just walked out and he said, come and do my pirate movie he said, it's ready to go and I said, yes which is the documentary which I just made, and that's where it begins, you know. Right. And that movie was a complete disaster. It was a 17th century pirate movie. Peter was completely impossible on the film. He was oh, my no. friend. He missed oh, 14 no. days of the movie. Oh, no. You know, faked a heart attack. and Faked a heart attack? Yeah, he collapsed. Oh. We sent him to the hospital in Kyrenia. Two days later, I pick up the paper in 
Carinia in the harbor, sitting with Peter Boyle, who's in the film. And there is Peter Sellers having dinner with Princess Margaret at San Lorenzo's <laughs> in Beecham oh, Place. No. And then, you know, so it's, you know, you can't. And we're trying to make this movie on real boats, but cut, because that's what the documentary is about. Oh, I can't so wait to see So that's how, that. because he said, so ruling class didn't create a complete green light for everything, because mm-hmm. it's all got screwed up. Immediately with Ghost in the Noonday Song with Peter Sellers, you know. Yeah, and Death Wish. And then it was a very hard road, you know, and it was very difficult because everybody blamed me for the failure of the Peter Sellers movie. Really? Yeah, you know? Of course. And again, I say that's what this whole documentary is about. And John Heyman, who produced 180 movies in the oh. 70s, there was this wonderful in to- interview talking to each other about it because he was my financial producer who never came to Cyprus. And we finally discussed, and he said, I don't remember any of it. I said, don't worry, it's all going to come back, you know. (laughs) I'll help with that. And we had this thing which could be released tomorrow on its own as a lecture about financing films Mm -hmm. in the 60s, 70s, and today. And his son is David Heyman, of course, who produced all the Harry Potter movies. He was a genius, you know, which was taken over by David now. And unfortunately, sadly, tragically, John died like a month, two months after this interview, which we did with each other. Well, would you say this Peter Sellers pirate film was the nadir, the low point of your creative life? I think it was really the worst day of my life, you know. More and than one day, I would guess. But it yes. wasn't one day. It was, uh, <laughs> I think, 87 days of shooting oh and my, dying oh my God. On, on boats, on real water in Cyprus. And when something isn't going right in a production, it's a house of cards because you can't stop yeah, it. You can't it's a train it. going down uh, the mountain. No. And it's a runaway train, you know, and you can't do nothing about it except complete the film because I knew that if the film comes out, it's bad, it's my fault. If I walk out, it, I will be blamed for it anyhow. So I had to stay, and uh, I stayed. But here, 43 years later, I made this film, Yes, which was just finished two weeks ago, about that dark day of my life. Wow. Well, well let's talk about genius and, and madness. I mean, Peter Sellers was... An avowed genius as a performer, as a comic actor, just as an actor. But he was unbelievably erratic and difficult to work with. Incredibly destructive and incredibly um, um, insecure. Mm. So not just self-destructive. Yeah. And he was really, I think he was both. I mean, he was, um, was, um, there's a word for it. He was... um, yeah, today he would have been certified. Yeah. And it's not just me, but the things they have done to, to um, um, uh, what's his name, Blake Edwards, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, Blake hated him. Yeah, the Pink and, Panther and movies. Pink and, Panther yeah. movies. And, and Taylor Hackford, when he was running the DGA, he said, you know, you got to do an interview. Blake and you have to do an interview for the DGA magazine. Mm-hmm. So Blake and I sat together. And the first thing Blake said to me, he said, look, everything happened to you 
has happened to me with Peter. <laughs> but you he know, made several movies with him. You know, yeah. except he made the incredibly yeah. successful. He made yes. like six, seven movies with him. But that's also the curse of the successful movie. If yeah, you're working with exactly. somebody who is more than a handful, exactly. you're going to repeat so the process. So it's, it's uh, incredibly destructive and genius to... Uh, you, you can't even describe the brilliance of him. And we were great friends. And our friendship got destroyed during the movie, but it came back together. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, ironically, because uh, I, I was dying after that movie. Mm -hmm. And finally, I got another film, which was a film called The Odd Job with Graham Chapman. Oh, yeah, from Monty Python. Yeah. And, and the Monty Pythons. And, and Peter was very famous in England for the goon shows with Spike Milligan created, who was also in my private pirate movie. Right, and they were the inspiration for Monty uh, Python. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They completely, the Pythons took everything from their radio shows. And Spikey was divinely insane. Mm -hmm. And Peter was maliciously insane. <laughs> that was the difference. There's so a big I'm caught schism. between these yeah. two, you know. And, and, and so... Um, I'm doing odd job, and Bert, Peter's driver, who was in Cyprus with us, says, he says, you know, Peter is shooting next door to you, another Pink Panther movie. Oh. And he said, Bertie, I know, I mean, the whole studio is painted pink because of Peter, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He said, he want, he's upset because you didn't come and say hello, Oh. you know, and he knows you're shooting here. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll come there. I never went. And two days later, tap, tap on my shoulder, and it's Peter. Wow. And he says, baby, you didn't come and see me. I said, I'm heartbroken. I'm fucking crazy. He's shooting a pink panther, and he's there talking to me. After all what happened, you know. And I said, don't you remember what happened, you know, between us? He said, you turned against me. You fired everybody, the producers, everybody. And then you try to get rid of me, you know. And he said, it wasn't, it wasn't you and me. It was us and them. And he said, what are you talking about? There was no them left. You got rid of everybody else, <laughs> ouch, you know. Ouch, he said, we've got to have dinner tonight. So I went up to his rented. He was doing, no, sorry. Then he was doing a Pink Panther when this happened. Mm -hmm. But then later on, I don't know, a year later, I bumped into him again in Hollywood. We had dinner and whatever. We kind of made up. And a year later, I'm here. I was going to do a film called um, 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 Demon Seed with Julie oh, yeah. Christie at UA. <clears throat> and I didn't like the script. Yeah. So I'm staying at a friend of us house in L.A. And I'm reading another script in the, in the swimming pool. And I can't believe it. I see Bert, Peter's driver, walking in. Two seconds later, Peter is walking in and he's looking around and he sees me. And I said, oh, baby, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm staying with Gabe Katzka, my friend, who was a stage producer, looked like Zero Mostel from uh -huh. New York. He says, we got to have dinner. You're crazy. we got to have dinner. You know, and he was doing being there at the time. Mm. And Melvin Douglas is in the Changeling, and Melvin right, Douglas right. is in being there. Right, of course. So we had dinner that night, and he said to me, and Lim Fredericks, who was married to, was cooking mm -hmm. uh, uh, jacket potatoes and hamburgers, and we're sitting there, <laughs> Peter and I, talking about life. And it's probably five years after the movie, you know. And he said, you know what? 
He said, I'm going to buy the movie back from Columbia and John Heyman, and I want you and Spike to re-edit it and do a different narration, you know. And then we discovered that he couldn't buy the film back because the film cost $2 million, but it was written off for $4 million. Uh-huh. And somebody took $2 million, and the books were closed forever. Uh-huh. So that's what happened. But that's, again, ironically, of the workings of the movie business, you know. But Peter and I ended up the same way as we were, you know, and then one day I pick up the paper, and Peter is dead, yeah. you know. And so this is your, your newest movie, this which is what just you see finished in this documentary. In this documentary. <laughs> well, I'd love to just kind of Sorry, jump I'm to... Sorry, I'm detouring into No, this is all ways. great. This is all fascinating to me, and I'm sure the audience. But, but I would love to jump fast forward to move into The Changeling. Yes. Let's talk about this. I mean, there was nothing on your, your list of credits that would hint that you would become a master of horror. No. And this The only thing was that when I read the script of The Haunting, Robert Wise's, when I was yes. an assistant, oh. and I knew Bobby Wise, you know, because he spent a lot of time in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was desperate to get on it as an assistant director while uh-huh. I was an assistant director. And I, I read The Haunting script, and I still remember sitting in my bed in Abercorn Place in St. John's Wood, so petrified reading mm-hmm. that script with the lights on, I could not move, you know. Did that inspire you to want and to? And that, of course, that did very much, you mm-hmm. know. And I was on the set of The Hauntings because wow. I was shooting on something else and I went up that spiral yes, staircase, yes. which was loose and Swaying, it was moving yes. like that. And uh, the, the actor who played the main part in it was a friend of mine. Richard Johnson. Richard Johnson yeah. and, and Deborah Carr. Mm-hmm. It was Deborah Carr, isn't mm-hmm. it? Uh, yeah. No, she was in The Innocents. No, Julie, uh, Julie, Julie Harris. Harris. Julie Harris. Yes, yeah. the very similar. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Julie Harris was in it. And, 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 and Robert, Mr. Weiss, was a friend, you know. Mm-hmm. And he had a pocket watch. And when I watched him directing, he... Every second, he whipped this out to look at the time. Really? He was so accurate and exact, you wow. know. Well, he had been an editor. He started yeah, as editor, an editor exactly. before he started directing. Yeah. So it, 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 it was that, you know. But, but then uh, uh, the changeling was a complete fook because I, in my career, I went hot and cold and hot and cold and hot and cold. And at the time, this friend of mine called up by the name of Eddie Rissian, he said, I want you to read this script called The Changeling. And if you like it, call the producer up, Joel Michaels and Gaz Drabinsky. Right. And uh, tell him what you think of the script. And he said, it's not an offer, but so I was, I got the script. At those days, you had to... I don't think Federal Express existed. Not no, then, And no. nothing existed. That was 1980. No computers, yeah. fuck yeah. all. <laughs> Anyhow, I get the script and I read the script. And that night, by then, my first wife passed away. I've committed suicide. I was married to my second wife, who was Carolyn, who was in ruling class, who played the girl. Mm-hmm. And we had a dinner party with Albert Finney and Eileen Atkins and all that. And I'm upstairs and over playing trivial pursuits and things. And I'm upstairs in my bedroom, which is near the attic of this house in London. 
mm-hmm. and I'm reading the Changeling script, you know, and it suddenly hit me and I said, oh, my God, you know, it's exactly the hauntings. It's that same frightened, that t- terror, you know, petrified. I was petrified listening to noises creaking this old English house, you know. And it's an intimate terror as yes. well. It's something that hits you in Absolutely. a human sense. And I, I said, I came downstairs, you know, and Albert and my wife said, you look white, are you okay? And I said, I read this most fantastic script and I've got to do it if I can get this moving. And two weeks later, I was in Los Angeles mm-hmm. doing the film. So by some fluke. You know? So the, one of the things that's really potent about it, well, George C. Scott and his yes. wife, Trish Vanderveer, yes. Uh, are both in the movie, but it's heartbreakingly sad. They lose a child early on, yes, and the ghost of this child is within this home, and yeah. it is so. But he thinks he's the ghost of his child, right? Which then turns out to be not to, to be. be something else entirely. Yeah. But I don't want to give too much away for those no. who haven't seen it yet. But the emotional core of that movie is what makes it work yeah. so well. There's pain. There's a deep pain yeah. that. That feels personal. Uh, is that something that you brought well, into it? Well, it did, you know, because uh, unfortunately in my life, I had uh, a tremendous amount of, I was connected to my brother who was two years older than me, dying. Yeah. When I was 14, he was 16. Mm-hmm. And then um, my father, father dying in, in my arms. arms. Yeah. And then later on, my first wife committing suicide when I was yeah. doing the ruling class. Yeah. And so I knew about pain a lot. Yeah. And I knew about being frightened because I was very frightened when my father was in prison and I was alone in the apartment in Budapest, you know. And I found a book about spiritualism in Hungarian. And when I read this book... I mean, this is before I was 14, 15. Mm -hmm. I was petrified, you know, and I always had this sense of there's another world. Not that we're being watched, but there's something out there which we don't see, you know. And there are ghosts, and I have seen ghosts several times in my life, you know. Really? Including my wife's Mm. soon after her death, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, and it is an incredible story because um, I nearly did a film uh, with Johnny Depp because Johnny loved the Changeling so much. He said it's the greatest ghost story of all times. Mm-hmm. And he bought a property called Ina Morata, which was a ghost story. Right. And we were going to do that film. And my first meeting with Johnny was sitting in his office of Melrose Place at this wonderful office and sitting with Johnny and we started talking, you know, and I started talking about my brother and my brother's death. Mm -hmm. And I told him this little story that in my mind, my brother is always a white pigeon because I fell asleep soon after, a few months after his death. And I was reading a volume of Upton Sinclair books called Lenny Bud Mm -hmm. in Hungarian. And I fell asleep in the summer's heat and the shutters were pushed out like in Paris, you know. And there was a balcony. And I dreamt that there was this pigeon staring at me. 
And when I woke up, there was the pigeon staring wow. at me. And ever since then, I was convinced. I've always wanted to have a little tattoo of a white pigeon. You oh, know? that's great. So I tell this to Johnny, and he will remember this for the rest of his life. Johnny went white, and he said, have you seen the paperback cover of Inamorata? I said, no, I haven't. And he said, bring me the cover. There is the white pigeon in the back of the book. Mm. And that white pigeon um, comes back to, uh, materializes in a seance. Mm. And it leads the main character to the next step of the mystery in that thing, you know. Oh. And it's, it's this, you know, anyhow. So well, it's because is, of uh, all these things in my mind, because you know it as a director, what you are, wonderful. Yeah. You Thank know, you. even when we don't work, we're always shooting movies constantly. While we're driving, you're always thinking about something else. So, I, you know, I, I know how to scare people. It's so easy. It's simple. So when this changeling came up, I mean, I was just in seventh heaven. I was ready to do it. And then my love for Hitchcock and his elongated sets and stuff and Orson Welles' things, you know, which Deep he did in his and wide lenses. And, yeah, wide yeah, lenses. And Kubrick was a friend mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. because Ken Adams was a great friend who designed all the Bond movies, but he also designed some incredible movies with Kubrick. And we were all together at, 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 at Ken Adams' house in Nicebridge always, and Sean Connery and all that, Michael Caine and a whole so bunch of us. So you've been close to The Haunting, The Shining. And, the Shining, and exactly, the, exactly the you know. So, um, but anyhow, so Stanley called up one day because he lived on Boreham Wood and he never came into London. Mm-hmm. He hated traffic and driving and all that. And he said, you got to see this new 14, 20, was it 24 mil lens, which was a zoom lens. Because Stanley used to design these things and then Pen, not Panavision, but whoever mm-hmm. built it for him. And so that's the lens I used in the changeling, oh. going up the staircase into the attic, you know. So everything kind of swims past. Yeah, you know, fantastic. And, and I had a mania about wide-angle lenses, you know. Yeah, me too. I, I love the 10-millimeter lens. Yeah, I use oh, it's it fantastic. It's great. You know. And it really And even the 9.8, as long as yeah, you don't distort yeah. too much. Yeah, as you long know. as you don't get that fisheye yeah, look. I know. So yeah. it was, you know, all those relationship and friendships and and uh, working with Fred Zinnemann when he was doing um, wow. as an assistant director during that early Associated British Pathé days, you know, when I was under contract. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, one day I woke up and I again wrote to CJ and I said, you know, I now realize that all the studios are outside London. I need to be transferred. Within two days, I was transferred to the studio. Wow. And I'm third assistant, second assistant. And suddenly, I'm on Fred Zinnemann's set, you know, um, Sundowners, you know, mm-hmm. with Robert Mitchum. Right. Meta, get Mitchum, you know, I go run upstairs <laughs> saying, Mr. Mitchum, we're ready for you. <laughs> Five minutes, and Mr. He says, Mitchum. Come in here, and drag me into his room, and said, We're not going down until you finish this. It was a half a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and I said, Mitchum, I'll be going to be fired if you don't come down. He said, Have a drink, then we'll go down. You know? I mean, you know, those things are incredible. Everything in life. is an education. Yeah. But, but I, I want to talk more about 
directing um, and about directing the Changeling and other things like that, including Masters of Horror. But you've had a lot of pain in your life and a lot of loss in my life. It's just something I identify with. Um, I've lost two brothers and parents and people. Um, If you're an artist, I think it deepens you as a human being but also as an artist. And within this genre particularly, if there's an emotional connection to these characters. Sure. And I've never felt one as deeply as I feel the in pain the of George C. Scott yeah. in The Changeling. And it had yeah. to come from a genuine place. Of and course. not just from George, but from you of as course. well. But there's, I mean, this a, is what I say to John Heyman in his interview about this pirate movie, is that a director completely disconnected what the subject is, puts his whole life into every setup and every shot, and it's connected with something else, with your own life. And if you can't make that connection, uh, you shouldn't do the movie because you're not using your own emotions. And in The Changeling, you know, I used, nobody would know, but my first wife who committed suicide, yeah. her name was Catherine Lacermans, you know. And George calls his daughter, you know, who throws the ball at the beginning, mm-hmm. that name, you know. Oh, really? Then yes. in the automatic writing, while I was doing the seance scenes in The Changeling, I went to several to research because we want to know everything. I went to several seances and I knew it before I went Mm. that my brother's name was going to come up. Wow. And his name was Thomas. Thomas in Hungarian. Thomas. And so I used those things in those things. You know? And that's the depth of the film. And that's where that emotional connection, and then you know how long you have to hold that shot before you go to the next. And it all comes from your pain or your... And that's why, and producers never understand this, but you did, you know, when we worked together because you're a director, is that... It's something else is 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 guiding your instinct and and um, and how long to hold certain things that it's not that it's offbeat but it is unusual not for the yes. sake of being unusual but that it is and it 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 does work because you you somehow transform your or transfer your own emotion into George Scott and I identified with George so much you know. Uh, he was so wonderful, you know, and he had a reputation of being a very difficult actor. Mm-hmm. And on the first day of shooting, which was in, in, in New York at Carnegie Hall, oh, it was raining yeah. and I went up and uh, it was the first shot when he walks out, you know, from the concert hall mm-hmm. where he's teaching. And I hugged George and I said, good luck. Mm. And he pushed me away and he looked at me if I'd gone absolutely insane. I had no idea why I was wishing him good luck, you know, because here is this humongous movie star. Yes. And here is this idiot Hungarian, you know. And, you know, I, you know, there are two ways of directing actors. Either you aggravate them into the role or you get inside everybody, all your actors, and you, you, you do it that they hardly even notice 
because you are getting them to do what you want to do without them knowing it. Because, because you connect with each other. Yeah, yeah. You well, know? you know, there's, you can see the difference between filmmakers who make movies based on watching movies yes. and filmmakers who make movies based on life. Yeah. And that's one of the things that is so profound about the changeling. Yeah. It feels like a life lived. Yeah, but it's terribly important. But that's what I say so often when we go and teach at universities or at some screenings, you know, to all these wonderful young kids, all the new life coming into this business, which is fantastic. As always say, you know, just listen to your instinct. Yeah. And there's nothing else. And I said the same thing to Maggie Smith, and she probably mm -hmm. will never remember it when she walked on the set, because I was second assistant waiting for them to come for makeup at 6.30 in the morning. And she walked in and she said to me, said, I'm so nervous, I don't know what to do, you know. And I said, just listen to your heart. Mm. <laughs> That's a great way to end it. Uh, we barely scratched the surface. Yeah. We have to do it again. Yes. So, uh, but Peter, so great to see you. And thank you so you much too. for sharing this with me. And, and one of the great experiences on Masters of Horror yeah. was watching you work and being there and seeing you. <laughs> I had such you, a wonderful, crazy, wonderful time. Watching you with all the body parts and blood and oh everything at that, at that feast during yeah. the Washingtonians episode yeah. was, uh, it was quite a joy experience. to do. Yeah. Well, thank you, and I can't My wait pleasure. to the next time. Okay. All right, lovely, thanks. lovely. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks for listening, and you can really help us if you subscribe, share, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Keep in touch with us on Twitter at PostmortemMG, on Instagram at PostmortemGram, and on Facebook at Postmortem with Mick Garris. And you can access decades of video interviews with the likes of Steven Spielberg, William Friedkin, Toby Hooper, Wes Craven, and much, much more at MickGarrisInterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.